0: This morning we're looking at Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. And this is a, a scene in the book of Acts where we get a glimpse into a prayer meeting of the early church. Now, there are certain circumstances in our lives that can change the way that we pray. Because you realize how badly you need God to. To intervene, it may be a critical illness, it may be a prodigal child, it may be the loss of a job, it may be any number of things. But in those hardships, in those dark times, you may find yourself praying more often, more honestly, more fervently, and perhaps even more deeply now not not deeper in the sense of like using big words or using more theological language or something like that but deeper in the sense of coming from a deeper place inside of you because again you recognize how desperately you need God's intervention for whatever is going on in your life at that moment now that's not to say of course that our normal everyday prayers are not Important or not genuine or or even not deep. But I think we would all agree that there is something about a prayer born out of hardship that we want to learn from, that we want to capture, and that we want to make a part of all of our prayers. We may not be able to capture it and keep it, whatever. It is, right? That makes those prayers distinctive and different, whatever it is. But we can certainly learn from those prayers and apply those lessons to our own prayers now, whether we are in hard times or not. So this morning, we're going to see how the persecuted pray in Acts chapter 4, both what they pray for and what they do not pray for. And how that can help us reorient our own prayers, whether in times of peace or persecution. So let's look together at Acts chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 23 to 31. And then we'll walk through them together. Remember that the apostles have been uh, arrested. Uh, They've been threatened. They've been told not to speak in the name of Jesus but because the the Bible says because the the people were with them, because the people were for them, the the authorities couldn't really do much to them. So they, they threatened them and then released them. And then verse 23 picks it up and says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, The place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So, again, the, the apostles had been arrested, and what happened was they had been coming to the temple, Peter and John, had been coming to the temple at the hour of prayer, and there was a man who had been lame from birth, and he was asking for money. And Peter essentially said, I don't have money, but I do have something I can give you. And he said, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And the man believed, and he was healed. And he started jumping around and dancing and praising God. And so, of course, a crowd of people were drawn. And Peter used that opportunity to talk about Jesus and to preach about Jesus and call the people to repent. And the authorities got upset, and so they arrested him and tried to get him to stop and all those things And so when when all that has unfolded and the apostles are released and they come back to the church, to their friends, to their brothers and sisters in Christ, they tell them in verse 23 what happened. They tell them about the the sort of trial that they had and the the things they were told and all, all those kinds of things. And their response, the church's response to this, of course, is to pray, to call out to God. And it says in verse 24 that the way they started their prayer was by calling on God as the sovereign Lord. Now, now we hear God called Lord all over the place in the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus is called Lord because Jesus is God. Not often, though, do we have it worded quite like this where he's called the sovereign Lord. Now, all over the Bible, it talks about God being sovereign, But here they address him as the sovereign one, as the Lord, the ruler, who is in charge of all. And it makes sense that they would call upon him in this way because this is what you need to remember when the nations are raging against you, when your enemies are trying to persecute you, when when there's hostility in the world against you. You need to remind yourself of who God is, and that God is sovereign, that he's in control. To say that he's sovereign just means that he's the king, he's the ruler, he's in charge. And we're going to see them talk about how that means that they don't have any reason to fear, that means that um, even God's enemies can't do as much damage as they think that they can. It's a a source of comfort and strength for Christians to remind ourselves that our God is in control, that our God is sovereign. So they call upon him as the sovereign Lord and as the creator. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Again, reminding us that God is the ruler because he's the creator, he's the maker. He created everything, so he rules over everything. Everything is under his control. Everything is under his his sphere, his domain. He is the ruler of all, the creator of all. And when it seems like the enemies of God have the upper hand, like it seemed to the early church, when it seems that way, it is important for us, vital for us, to remember that they don't. They don't have the upper hand. They don't have the most power. They don't have ultimate say. They don't have much of what they think they have. And they don't have what sometimes in our minds we start to think that they have. Some kind of unchecked, influence. God's just up there with his hands up like, well, I, I can't do anything. That is not the case. And we have to remind ourselves that God is in control when everything seems out of control, that he's the creator, he's the ruler. There's comfort for us in knowing that even if what's going on doesn't make sense to us, it has not caught God by surprise and in fact, it might be exactly what God intended to happen. Notice the next thing that they say is they they quote Psalm two, and this we've talked about like the the how helpful it is to pray Scripture to pray from the Bible. That's what they're doing here. They're in their prayers. They are drawing on Psalm two to help express what they are experiencing, what's going on. And they mention in verse 25 that God spoke Psalm 2. So I thought the Psalms were from David. Yeah, they they say that too, right? But it was David inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaking the words of God, right? That's what they say. Who through the mouth of our father David, you the sovereign Lord, through the mouth of David, said by the Holy Spirit. So these are your words, God. You spoke this. David was your servant. He was your instrument. This is your word. And here's what you said when you spoke through David. You said... Why did the Gentiles, or the nations, rage, and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now those words were about, at least in some sense, about David, and probably about Solomon, his son, is about God establishing David, and then Solomon as his king in Israel, and uh, you know, they had enemies all around them just like they do today. And so, at some level, the psalm was about David and about Solomon, but it was definitely about more than David and more than Solomon. We know that David was the one God promised the Messiah would come from his line, a king would come from his offspring who would sit on his throne and reign forever and rule forever. That's what we're saying about this morning, right? That his kingdom will have no end. And Jesus made clear, right, that he was that person. That's why he's often called the son of David in the New Testament. Because he is that promised one from David's line. And the church, as they're praying from Psalm 2, they make that connection. So that's why they say in verse 27, For truly in this city, they're still in Jerusalem where all this unfolded, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. All right, so the, the anointed one that Psalm 2 is talking about, in some sense that was David. He was anointed to be king. In some sense that was Solomon because he was the next in line after David. But in the ultimate sense, the anointed one that Psalm 2 is talking about and that David and Solomon are pointing toward is Jesus himself. In fact, the word Christ, we call him Jesus Christ. The word Christ means the anointed one. That's who he is. That's his identity. He is God's anointed one. And so what they're saying here is the words of Psalm 2 that you spoke through David a thousand years ago, right? Three thousand for us now, but from their perspective, a thousand years ago. Those words that you spoke through David they were about your son Jesus and they have been fulfilled right so that's why they go on to say you know truly in this city we gathered together against Jesus both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the gentiles and the peoples of Israel so when you look at the quote from Psalm 2 and it mentions the gentiles and kings and rulers and peoples the church is saying, against Jesus was gathered the Gentiles, the Roman soldiers who helped put him to death, Pilate himself. Against Jesus were gathered kings and rulers, like Herod, who styled himself a king. The peoples of Israel, even. The Jews who, you know, Judas who betrayed Jesus and the Jews who were a part of his arrest and his fake trials and and turning him over to Pilate and demanding his crucifixion. All of that that took place, right, that took place in this city not that long ago, they're saying, all of that that took place was exactly what you said through David would happen. That was prophecy. You, You prepared us for it, and it took place just like you said it would. That's why they say in verse 28, what they were gathered together to do, right? Now, what they thought they were gathered together to do was to get rid of this Jesus guy who's causing so much trouble. And has got so many people following him and, you know, it's taking away our influence and all, all the kinds of things they didn't like about Jesus. We're, we're gathered together to get rid of him. Right the psalm talks about wanting to burst their bonds right and, and they don't want Jesus to be king. They don't want God to be in charge. They don't want to have to submit to God's anointed. They want to be in charge. They want to be the rulers. They're trying to get rid of God's anointed. They're trying to get rid of Jesus. But what actually happened though they didn't know it what they were actually gathered together to do is what verse 28 says to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All that they were ultimately able to do, God was exactly what you had planned to take place. Now, was what they did evil and wicked? Absolutely. Will they be held account to account for betraying Jesus, for rejecting Jesus? Absolutely. But were even their sinful, rebellious actions able to thwart and overturn the plan of God? Absolutely not. Even in rejecting Jesus and sending him to the cross, they couldn't stop God's plan. All they could do was fulfill it. Now They didn't know that's what they were doing. But that is what they ended up doing. Even those who try to throw off God's rule and God's reign, in the end, have to bow the knee. In the end, they end up serving God's purposes, whether they meant to or not. Why, though, was that God's plan, we might ask? Like, why... If they hated Jesus and wanted him to die, but Jesus dying fulfilled God's plan, like why would God plan that anyway? Why would God predestine, right? Why would he determine ahead of time that what's going to happen is that his son is going to suffer on the cross at the hands of his enemies? Why do that? Why was that God's plan? Well, that's the good news of the bible right that's that's the gospel that god who made us loved us even though we shook our fist at him and rebelled against him and looked at his way and said no thank you i will go my own way still loved us such that he sent his son to take on flesh and humble himself and suffer in our place the fate that we should have suffered at the the debt that our sin had incurred, the punishment that our sins deserved, Jesus Himself took upon himself on the cross, suffering in our place for our sin, so that all those who wake up, as it were, the, the light shines, the, the light comes on, the, God convicts your heart, you recognize how foolish you've been, how how you've sinned against God, and you turn and you run to Jesus, you call upon Jesus, you then receive that forgiveness, that salvation, that restoration of fellowship, that new life that Jesus purchased through his death. In seeking to get rid of Jesus, all they did, in other words, was play their part in God's plan of bringing about our salvation. That's what it means for God to be sovereign. That's what it means for God to truly be in control. This is what Job recognized. You know that long book of Job in the Old Testament where Job suffers terribly, right? Loss of family, loss of physical health, loss of, well, his friends are not great friends, right? Uh, And he wants... He wants an audience with God. Right? He wants to bring his case before the Lord. And eventually he gets what he's asking for. God confronts him. And God meets him. And Job is rightly um, undone, in a sense, by that. And at the toward the end of the book in Job 42, one of Job's responses to God when he finally sort of gets to see him for who he is is he says i know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted now when the world feels like it's out of control or your life feels like it's out of control that's a really good thing to remember god you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I might not understand why this is going on, I might not understand what you're up to in this, but I know that you have not stopped being in control. I know that what's going on is not the result of somebody outsmarting you, outmaneuvering you, somehow thwarting your purpose and your plan for my life. That, That can't be what's happening. So even though I don't get it, I know that you're still in control. Paul says something similar in Ephesians chapter 1, where he's, he's calling upon the church to celebrate God's grace to us in salvation, that he loved us before the foundation of the world, that he chose us in Christ, that, he, uh, has, uh, that Christ has redeemed us at the cost of his own life, that he's, he's forgiven our sins through his blood. And then he says in Ephesians 1.11, he says, In him, so in Christ... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Your salvation, in other words, is secure precisely because God is in control. God is sovereign, and he's making everything work according to his plan, so nobody else is going to be able to mess up his plan to save you and bring you into his kingdom. Nobody. Satan's going to try. He's roaring. He's mad. He's trying to wreak havoc in your life. But he's not God. And he's not equal to God. There's not like two equal powers, one good and one evil. Satan is a creature. He's a, he's a created being. He's powerful. You know, you don't want don't to underestimate him, right? But you also don't want to give him more power in your mind than he really has. He's a creature. He's a created being. He is subject to God's rule and reign. He can't thwart God's plan. God is the only one with ultimate Power. He's the only one who is ultimately in control. So whether it is suffering persecution or any other kind of suffering that we experience, we have to remember that God is in control, that God has a plan, that He is good and that we are His people. We can trust Him because He's in charge and we know the Bible says He is working all things together for our good. Not that all things are good, but he is working all things, even the bad things, together for our good. Again, whether we can see how exactly he's doing that right now or not, we believe that he is. Now, so far, this prayer hasn't had any requests in it. They haven't even asked for anything yet. All they're doing so far is, is... Saying to God, we know who you are. We know what you're doing. We know you're in charge, and we just we want to affirm that and remind ourselves of that. But they do have a request or two to make of the Lord, and we see that beginning in verse 29. He says, "And now, Lord, look upon their threats." Remember, this is, the, this is what happened to the apostles. They were threatened and told not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. In particular, they did not like the fact that they were preaching in Jesus the resurrection. So they're threatening them, trying to shut them down, trying to get them to stop preaching about Jesus. And this is not something new. They say, here's what happened in Jerusalem to Jesus, your anointed. And now here we are, your people, and the same people who were raging against Jesus, they're now raging against us. The same people who were persecuting Jesus, who had arrayed themselves against Jesus, they are now persecuting us. They are now threatening us. We see when Jesus uh, confronts Saul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Saul's persecuting Christians, he's trying to throw them in jail, All the, he's trying to destroy the church, he tells us. And Jesus confronts Saul, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is Saul persecuting Jesus? He's persecuting the body of Christ. So yeah, he's persecuting Christ. we're, We're his body, we're his church, we're his people to persecute us, to persecute him. Saul's raging against the church was actually a raging against Christ. And the church here in their prayer is recognizing that connection as well. They were raging against Jesus, now they're raging against us. We're not surprised by that. We saw it coming. Jesus warned us it was coming. It's here. And so now here's our request in the middle of it. What they do not say next is, God, please make this persecution stop. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad prayer to pray. Like, we don't want there to be persecution. But they knew the persecution was coming. Jesus told them the persecution was coming. Jesus told them, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. You know this is coming. So they are not surprised, they are not caught off guard. What is their prayer? Their prayer is, Lord, don't let this persecution stop us from speaking about you. Their chief prayer is not stop the persecution. It's don't let the persecution stop us from doing what you've called us to do. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant, here's their request, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They are trying to intimidate us, they are trying to threaten us, they are trying to shut us down. Don't let us give in to that. Don't let us submit to that. Don't let us be intimidated. Don't let us respond to their threats. Instead, help us Keep speaking boldly like you have called us to do. Now, speaking boldly, persecution or not, is not easy. Even Paul, who most of us would say, I don't think Paul had a problem with boldness. Right? Even Paul, when he's speaking to the Ephesians about prayer and calling upon them to pray for him in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, uh, you know, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, so be praying for all believers. And then he says, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And you might be tempted to say, like, well, Paul, why don't you ask me to pray for something you actually struggle with, right? Because I don't think you struggle with that. Except apparently he did. Even Paul needed prayer to continue to speak boldly in the face of persecution, and opposition, hardship. We should not be surprised then if we require the same thing. If we need to pray and ask God to help us to be bold, to not let the opposition that we face, small as it might be and compared to what Paul experienced, it's still real. And we still need God's help, we still need God's spirit to embolden us and empower us to faithfully speak God's word. Now, what if your hardship that you're facing, uh, that's causing you to call out to God in prayer, is not persecution? What if it's something else? Is there still something we can learn from how they're responding that will help us in, in other difficulties and hardships? There is. If their prayer in the midst of persecution is, "Lord, don't let this particular hardship, the hardship of persecution, don't let it stop me from being faithful to you," that's a principle we can apply to any kind of hardship. So, let's say you're going through some kind of critical illness, or a loved one is going through some kind of critical illness. What can you pray? You pray for healing. Obviously, right? That's a good thing to pray. The Bible tells us to pray that. But we can also pray this. God, don't let this illness, this hardship, keep me from praising you and trusting you. Because that's one of the things the enemy tries to use those hardships for. Right? If we go back to the book of Job, at the beginning of Job, Job's a righteous man. He's a godly man. He fears God. And Satan says, yeah, well, he fears you now because he's got a great life. But if you start taking that stuff away from him, guess what? He's going to curse you. Satan's aim is to get Job to curse God when his stuff is gone, when his family has gone. When we suffer losses of those kinds in our own life or face hardship in those areas, in our family, with our health, whatever it might be, One of the things Satan would love to do is to use that to convince you that God is not trustworthy, that he's not faithful, that he's not good, that you shouldn't praise him, that you shouldn't trust him. That's what he's trying to do. That's that's how he's threatening you. So you respond in prayer by saying, God, don't let this, whatever it is, don't let this keep me from trusting you. Don't let this keep me from praising you. Don't let me keep this don't let this keep me from depending upon you. So that's that's the main thing they pray for. They also mention in verse 30, they want God, or, or they're at least anticipating and, and, and hoping that God will continue to do what he's been doing. So they're asking for prayer that they would keep doing what they've been doing and they also want God to keep doing what he's been doing. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I mean, this is what got him into this mess, right? This persecution is that God healed a lame man through Peter by the name of Jesus, by the power of Jesus. And what Peter is communicating to the people when they're all, they all come together in the wake of this miracle, what happened, what's going on, how do we explain this? What Peter points to is the Jesus you crucified, who you rejected, God raised him up. He's still alive. This man was healed in his name. You thought you got rid of Jesus, but he is still at work. And so what they're saying here seems to be, God, let the people know. Keep doing things that they will know that Jesus is still alive, that Jesus is still at work, that you are still healing, saving. The signs, the miracles, the healing, they're not ultimate. They are there to tell people This is what it looks like when Jesus comes to save and when Jesus comes to reign. When the kingdom of God comes, people get healed, demons get cast out, people's lives get restored. That's what Jesus came to bring about, and that's what we're going to experience at the end when he returns. No more death, no more demons, no more any of that stuff, no more of that hardship, just peace and righteousness and joy. That's what Jesus came to establish So God. Don't let them stop you either. You keep doing what you're doing to show people, to communicate people, the reality of your son and the salvation he has accomplished. When they finished this prayer, it says in verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. I think that just means, that's part of how God showed them, I heard you, I'm with you. I, I, I'm answering your prayer. Right? We see the same kind of thing happen uh, for Paul later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16. He's been arrested, he's been thrown in jail, so similar kind of situation. And it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening, listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. The prisoners were not the only ones listening to Paul's singing and praying. God was too. And he shook the prison and he opened the doors. Similarly here, when they're praying and calling out to God, we're being persecuted, but we don't want to stop being faithful. We're being threatened, but we don't want those threats to intimidate us. God, help us. God shakes the place to say, I've heard you. And I'm with you. And then it says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Just like on the day of Pentecost, when They were filled with the Spirit of God and preached to the people there in Jerusalem. So again, they are now filled with the Spirit in response to their request so that they continue to speak boldly as they had asked, as they had been doing before, so they will continue to do by the work of the Holy Spirit. So, whether you are facing hardships just now or not, remember these things when you pray. God is sovereign, nothing can thwart his plan, he hears you, he's for you. And May he fill us with his spirit so that we also may speak the word with boldness and follow him faithfully in a world that's raging against him. Let's pray.